Welcome back to Problematic Women, a Facebook watch show and a podcast that showcases strong conservative women, current events, and the hypocrisy of the so-called feminist left. I'm Bree Payton, staff writer at The Federalist and friend of The Daily Signal. And you're back after quite a long break. Where have you been? Yeah, so I've been away. I've been at the Claremont Institute in Claremont, California, completing the 2018 Publius Fellowship. And then before that, I went to go watch my brother get hitched. He got married (laughs) in Ellensburg, Washington. So we went up there to see that. That was pretty fun. First kid in the family to get married. And now I'm back after like a month hiatus of the show. Hope you all miss me. I missed you, and I want to give you a big welcome back. For those who don't know me, I'm Kelsey Harkness, a senior news producer with The Daily Signal, and I want to give a special shout-out and welcome to everybody who's watching us on Facebook Watch right now. It's our first time joining this platform, and we are excited to have you. So we've got a great show for you today. We have a lot to unpack. So first off, let's start off with what happened with Sarah Palin recently. She got duped into participating in a Sasha Baron Cohen Showtime series, and she said in a lengthy Facebook post that she was actually tricked into the interview. This is a pretty ridiculous story. Here is part of what she wrote on Facebook explaining what exactly went down. Quote, for my interview, my daughter and I were asked to travel across the country where Cohen, I presume, had heavily disguised himself as a disabled U.S. veteran, fake wheelchair and all out of respect for what I was led to believe would be a thoughtful discussion with someone who had served in uniform. I sat through a long interview full of Hollywoodisms, disrespect, and sarcasm, but finally had enough and literally physically removed my mic and walked out, much to Cohen's chagrin. The disrespect of our U.S. military and middle-class Americans via Cohen's foreign commentaries under the guise of interview questions was perverse. So Palin then challenged CBS, Showtime, and Cohen himself to donate all of the proceeds that he got from the show to a charity for American veterans. Mock politicians and innocent public personalities all you want. If that's if that lets you sleep at night, she wrote. But how dare you mock those who have fought and those who have served our country? And just when you thought this story could not get any worse, Palin says she was also purposely dropped off at the wrong airport and missed her flight. Here's what she said on that front. As an aside, for further insight into the wealthy corporate enablers of this kind of joke, I'll add that after great costs on our part in time and resources to contribute to their, quote, documentary, the Cohen CBS Showtime production team purposely dropped my daughter and me off at the wrong Washington, D.C. airport after the fake interview, knowing we'd miss all flights back home to Alaska. After refusing to take our calls to help us get out of the bind they put us in for three days, I wrote this off as yet another example of the sick nature that is media slash entertainment today. Yeah, I mean, missing your flight to Alaska, that's a big deal. So for those who don't live in Washington, D.C., there's basically three airports um, pretty close by. And you can't easily get to one or another. You need a car. And, yeah, it's not like she was taking a quick flight to New York. She had a flight to Alaska. I do wonder if she was the one who ended up having to pay for the ticket. But can you just imagine after... After going through this interview, being purposely dropped off at the wrong airport. Yeah, that's pretty messed up. 
Okay, what's also messed up about this story is the the new show is supposed to air on Showtime, I think any day now, I think this weekend, if I'm correct. And um, Showtime is a part of CBS. What is so unbelievable is that nobody from CBS has come out and made a statement about this, about one of their talent dressing up as a fake veteran to use that to mock a, a politician, of course, a Republican politician. I do think there's a lot of hypocrisy here. If this, if it were Democrats being duped by people, by Republicans dressing up as fake veterans, I think it would be the end of the show. They would never air it. There would be so much outrage. But instead, I don't think this story is hardly receiving any media attention. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, don't pretend to be a veteran like that's it's so disrespectful. that's pretty messed up all right so all right let's talk about everything that's going on this week with the abortion freakout. so after the nomination of brett kavanaugh individuals on the left and some conservatives on the right are saying that his nomination is going to lead to the end of roe v wade so let's kick it off with tommy laren and some of the thoughts that she shared on fox and friends earlier this week Here's a clip. It's important to clarify my statements there because first and foremost, I believe that Judge Kavanaugh is a constitutional conservative, not a religious judicial activist, which is exactly what we want. My problem is with some of my fellow conservatives who have put it out there that we are, quote, coming for Roe v. Wade. That is a mistake because we are putting it out there and implying that we are sending a a justice to the bench to carry out religious judicial activism. which is a mistake and is unconstitutional. And if we as conservatives are going to imply that, if that's going to be our messaging, we might as well spit on the Constitution. That is not what we stand for. If we are not going to uphold the Constitution on its merit, who will? That is up to us to do. So that my real problem here, regardless of my views on abortion, pro-life, pro-choice, is the messaging of our Supreme Court justice and how he will handle Roe v. Wade if it comes to that point. Okay, so there's a lot to unpack. There's a lot going on. I'm just quickly, I'm just going to run through the first couple of really bad and nonsensical things that she has to say. Okay, first of all, Roe v. Wade is a bad ruling, constitutionally speaking. And pretty much everyone agrees on this, regardless of whether or not you know, you're know you pro-life or pro-choice. You're going to say, a lot of women say that you know, this is from a constitutional perspective, not great. They uh, legally had to jump, jump through a lot of hoops to come out with that decision. So I think Roe v. Wade has, you know, a lot of support, but the legal reasoning itself doesn't. Right. And OK, so Inez Felcher, I'm not an attorney, but <laughs> one of our friends is and she has a great explainer about this over at the Federalist.com explaining just how this is just bad from a constitutional legal perspective. And it's not just conservatives. It's not just pro-life women who don't like Roe. Ruth Bader Ginsburg herself said while she was you know, visiting the University of Chicago a couple of years ago, she said that it's a bad ruling because it just totally dismisses the issue from the perspective of women. And it deals about abortion from a perspective of privacy and that the judges who wrote that opinion had the male doctors in mind, not the women patients. So even feminists um, you know, still consider this to be a bad ruling. Number three, her argument that conservatives should totally ignore 
social issues uh, because, I don't know, we win elections when we focus on economic ones. I think that that's just silly for a number of reasons. I think, first of all, she's being very hypocritical in saying that because she's always the one going out there, you know, telling Colin Kaepernick that he needs to stand for the national anthem, telling NFL players that they shouldn't be kneeling. I mean, there's a number of social issues that she's constantly commentating and talking about. It's all the social issues where she really rose to fame. Yeah, exactly. Right. About political correctness, run amok, about immigration. And President Trump, in many ways, also ran on social issues. It's very clear conservatives care about social issues. So I think she sort of undermines her own argument there and is kind of hypocritical. Yeah. And her whole notion that overturning Roe v. Wade would be to spit on the Constitution is laughable because the Constitution is a document that's set out to preserve the statements um, set out in, you know, the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution itself and the Declaration and the entire U.S. government. And just basically the reason why America exists is to protect the right to life, the right to the pursuit of happiness uh, and the right to liberty. And abortion, in my opinion, undermines all three of those things, right? So conservatives who are out there defending the Constitution, who think that the Declaration of Independence is something important, um, you're going to be pro-choice. I mean, I'm sorry, you're going to be pro-life because you want to safeguard the baby's rights to be born and their right to life and their right to, right to liberty and their right to the pursuit of happiness. I think Ben Shapiro made a really good point this week that defending the right to life is perhaps the mo- most important issue for conservatives to defend because in so many of these uh, fights we get to over laws, regulations here and there, those will come and go. But he said 50, 100 years from now, what people are going to look back at us um, on and, and examine our beliefs is is the way we treated the unborn. That's something that our generation potentially could be remembered for. And I thought that was a very good point. Um, well, Brie, while we're on the topic of abortion, uh, there was an article I wanted to draw everybody's attention to in the Wall Street Journal this week written by Jason L. Riley. The title is Let's Talk About the black abortion rate. This is such an underreported and under discussed topic when it comes to abortion. Um, so let me just quote a little bit from his piece that really gives you some perspective on how pervasive abortion is in the African American community. So, quote, in New York City, thousands more black babies are aborted than born alive each year, and the abortion rate among black mothers is more than three times higher than it is for white mothers. According to a city health department report released in May, between 2012 and 2016, black mothers terminated 136,000 pregnancies and gave birth to 118,000 babies. By contrast, births far surpassed abortions among whites, Asians, and Hispanics. So this piece goes on and on about, it really offers a lot of interesting um, numbers that I think are important to raise when we talk about abortion. But it really talked about how abortion used to be a... um, it didn't happen much in African-American communities, and he tried to examine the reasons why it's been on the rise so much. And he he drew a parallel between um, the abortion fight and Black Lives Matter because he says if, you know, groups like Black Lives Matter, if they really care about um, the number of African-Americans who are lost through violence, um, this is a form of violence. And 
yeah, the end of it, his last sentence was, why are the people who want to lecture the rest of us about the value of black lives pretending otherwise? I'd encourage you all to go read that over at the Wall Street Journal. It's worth a couple minutes. Again, the title is Let's Talk About the Black Abortion Rate. So over the weekend, comedian Michelle, comedian, I should put in square quotes, scare quotes, Michelle Wolf, at the end of her Netflix special, she con- concluded her Netflix special by saying, God bless America and God bless abortion. So here's a clip. And women, don't forget, you have the power to give life and men will try to control that. God bless abortions and God bless America. Wow. So after reading the Wall Street Journal piece about how black lives are being systematically snuffed out by a corporation that is targeting them on purpose, you know, we have that paired with Michelle Wolf's comments, just treating abortion like it's a punchline. Abortion is not a punchline. And I think that that's something that we always have to remind ourselves that it does, by definition, end in the termination of a life. And that most of the time, those lives disproportionately affect minorities. Uh, So we should never treat that as a punchline. Always treat it seriously. Michelle Wolf, shame on you. Agreed. I think that's something that comes up time and time again in this podcast and, and Facebook show where we talk about the very crass um, and casual ways that abortion is discussed in society today. And this might sound a little bit silly, but Brie, I have a little theory that if people really knew what abortion was, what takes place during an abortion, they wouldn't be okay with it. And also, if you saw what an abortion would be like in a dog who was pregnant with a bunch of little puppies, People wouldn't be okay with that. But for some reason, I think a lot of people block it out of their minds because abortion is really a hard truth. When you think about it too much, you realize how wrong it is. Absolutely. And we're going to change. We're going to switch gears a little bit. We're going to talk about something a little bit more upbeat. So American Eagle has launched an awesome new campaign featuring swimsuit models that are featured with different disabilities. So there's someone in a wheelchair. There's a woman who has diabetes and has an insulin pump, um, you know, that's clipped to her bikini bottoms. There's another woman with Down syndrome, another woman with vitiligo and a whole lot more. A lot of women just of a variety of different looks um, of different things. And so I think this is a step in the right direction. I think it's cool that American Eagle has decided to do this. This is something that a few years ago they decided to stop photoshopping all of their lingerie and swimsuit models um, in order to just give a more realistic perspective. And now this is a step in that direction. Kelsey, what are your thoughts? What I want to know is, does this help American Eagle's bottom line? Whether or not it does, doesn't matter because they are absolutely doing the right thing. But I do wonder what the what the consumer response is to this. Are people motivated to go buy their bras and underwear from American Eagle now because they are um, putting forward real women and um, giving women a platform uh, visually who otherwise don't have one. Yeah. I mean, for me, if I'm like shopping for swimsuits online and I see pictures of like perfect Photoshop women, sometimes that can be fun. You know, like, oh, it's fun. Maybe imagining myself pretending like I can look like that. But sometimes you're like, I just want to see kind of what I would actually look like. And if you see someone that looks kind of Brie, closer you to look you, like one of the models, <laughs> let's you decide the- <laughs> I mean, we all have days where we, you know, feel less than 100, right? So, you know, if I'm shopping online and I'm like, okay, you know, this girl has more of my body type. I could look like that. She looks good. 
I'm going to go for this. I could definitely see that as being kind of a draw, right? And my sister, who I hope doesn't get mad at me for sharing this, but you know, vitiligo is something, a skin condition that runs in my family where you have kind of lighter patches of skin, um, mostly around like your joints and sometimes like around the corners of your face and different things like that. So a lot of actually members of my family have this. And for a while it was like, no one ever knew what it was. And I feel like people nowadays are a lot more familiar with it because we have more like models and actresses and stuff like that. Like Winnie, that famous supermodel who's just like, yeah, I have vitiligo, but also I'm very beautiful and hot. So look at me. Right. Like that kind of a message is empowering. Is and that I think why you call positive. makeup? Is that why you call makeup the great equalizer? Yeah. I mean, you know, I love looking, I think the Instagram, I'll just be quick here because I know we have to move on, but I think like the Instagram makeup like phenomenon that we've seen has been really positive and empowering. And I think like for, it's fun to see, you know, burn victims or people with really, you know, bad rosacea or really bad acne or just different skin conditions and blemishes being able to look like a supermodel in 15 minutes, right? Like regardless of what skin conditions you have, regardless of like your size, you can look like a Photoshop supermodel in a number of minutes. I think that that's really cool. And I think it also kind of breaks down the illusions that we have about the images that we see in magazines and on TV, right? Like, oh, anyone can look like them, but they just need a ton of work and a ton of time going into that. I think that that's also really empowering. Like I'm not, you know, this crazy swamp monster that looks so different from people that I see on TV. I can be like them too. I think that that's really empowering and really cool. And I like it. I think your perspective on makeup is really refreshing because I worked for a very brief stint in the beauty industry and I was so turned off by how superficial it is. But to hear your perspective, I love it. And it gives me hope that maybe we're not as shallow as I sometimes (laughs) think we are. But moving on, this is an interesting story. So Business Insider took down a commentary piece by a writer named Daniela Greenbaum about Scarlett Johansson's role in an upcoming movie called Rub and Tug, where she plays a transgender male. So a lot of trans activists were offended that a woman would have the honor of playing a trans man. And what Daniela did was come out in support of Scar Joe. But her hot take was apparently too much for Business Insider Editor-in-Chief Nicholas Carlson, so he removed it after it published on July 6th. According to CNN, Business Insider has since placed a statement on the column's URL explaining that it was deleted, quote, because upon further review, we decided it did not meet our editorial standards, unquote. Wow, so... He, ex- he he explained that decision so vividly. <laughs> it's not vague at all, guys. Come on. So later on, she tweeted that she decided to resign from Business Insider, and she explained why in a letter to the editor. She says that her decision to take the decision to take down her column represented the tarring of a commonsensical view as somehow bigoted or not thought out. The capitulation on part of those who are supposed to be the adults in the mob. So her point, she says here, can an actor act? That's the question I wanted to weigh on on when I saw the brouhaha about Scarlett Johansson's role in the upcoming movie Rub and Tug. Greenbaum said in the letter, which she posted on Twitter, my judgment, yes, a woman can play a woman or a trans man. How After controversial. All, 
I mean, after all, she's acting, right? Like, she can be like a dog. She can act and be a number of different things. Anyway, well, she a, continues. A, a trans man also is someone who was who is biologically a woman and identifies right. as a man, just to be clear. Yeah. So she continues. Apparently, that radical view that actors should be free to act ooh, is beyond the pale of acceptable opinion as just a few hours after it went up, the piece was erased from the site following a campaign against me. Dun, dun, dun. Insane. Yeah. She did the right thing by resigning. I think that was very brave. A lot of people don't realize how difficult it can be gigs to get as a commentary writer. Um, so giving giving one up, giving up her relationship with Business Insider could cost her significantly financially. But this story was just kind of crazy to me because I don't think her opinion on this is that controversial. I mean, what are they? I, I wonder what their what campaign um, Scarlett Johansson is facing from these trans activists if someone who just came out defending her lose uh can't even write a commentary on it yeah exactly and as a writer i mean you have to work somewhere where you know that they have your back yeah yeah and you know that you can push the envelope a little bit um within reason obviously but you have to be able to be free to say and write what you think and if you're not free to do that and if like the standards are contingent upon twitter troll mobs which in this case it very obviously was then that's a tricky toe. That's a tricky line to toe. That's a tricky thing to have to navigate. So I don't blame her. Agreed. Well, that wraps up our first segment. When we come back, we will be back with our next segment called This Is What Feminism Looks Like, where we hold up what we think are positive examples of fem- feminism in society today. And we are back with our next segment. This is what feminism looks like. This is a great story we have to highlight for you this week. So backstory, Iranian women, hopefully you know by now, as we've covered a lot in our show, basically have no freedoms. Uh, They have been very bravely protesting their lack of freedoms um, a lot in the last year. A lot of them have been taking their hijabs off on the street, which they are illegally not allowed to do. And one of the more recent acts of protests, forms of protests, are women dancing in support of an Instagram teen who was actually arrested for doing that exact act. And ever since doing this, uh, more women have been arrested because they're posting some of their um, ooh, controversial pictures and videos of them dancing on social media platforms such as Instagram using hashtags like one that translates to hashtag dancing isn't a crime. Except in Iran it is. For those watching on Facebook Watch, here is a clip. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. So blogger Hoshian Renagi commented, if you tell people anywhere in the world that 17 and 18 year old girls are arrested for their dance, happiness and beauty on charges of spreading indecency while child rapists and others go free, they will laugh because to them it's unbelievable. And I think... Yeah, I think that, you know, they're absolutely right that the double standard here is quite shocking. And the realities that many Iranian women are forced to live under really are quite shocking. And I think 
you know, oftentimes the feminist movement, particularly the feminist movement on the left in America, can be very, very, very insular, right? Like they're not even going to include women who don't totally agree with them on XYZ issues. Um, so I think a lot of times the feminist movement here in the U.S. forgets about our sisters over in Iran, and it's very important to stand up for them and to, you know, speak out and say, yes, they should be free to dance and they should be free to live and that sexual assault should be punished. I think a lot of, uh, I think a, a contributing reason for the silence amongst feminisms in the United States and some other Western countries when it comes to women's rights in places like Iran is the simple fact that many of these women are Muslim. And in the United States, I think that the feminist movement portrays Muslim women as um, victims who need their help and um, and sort of symbols of the feminist movement, of women's empowerment. And so it's very difficult for them in the same sentence to also confront the inconvenient fact that in many Muslim-dominated countries around the world, Muslim women are lacking very basic human rights, like the ability to dance in public. Yeah, or even just on their Instagram accounts from the privacy of their homes. That's apparently too much. So when we get back, we're going to crown our problematic woman of the week. And we're back, and it's time to crown our problematic woman of the week, my favorite part of the show. So this week, Kelsey, if you didn't know, all of your reproductive rights and your just entire life as a woman is in jeopardy now that Brett Kavanaugh has been named Kennedy's successor to the Supreme Court. Coach Gay. You have no rights now. It's all over, according to feminists on the left who are pushing this narrative. Anyway, our problematic women of the week are a group of clerks who actually used to clerk for Brett Kavanaugh. Yes. Yeah, so this is a story I actually undertook for The Daily Signal because moments after Kavanaugh's nomination, a group of former female clerks went to bat for him talking about his record, why he is the most qualified candidate to um, take on that role at the Supreme Court. And what I loved is they also, you know, when I pushed them a little bit on uh, his treatment of women, they talked about how he was really one of their biggest advocates through their careers. So one of the former clerks that I that I interviewed, her name is Rebecca Tabelson. Uh, she clerked on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals from 2010 to 2011. And she said this sliver of the legal profession is notoriously male-dominated. And it really was through the support of Kavanaugh that she was able to navigate that male-dominated industry and go on to, after that, clerk at the Supreme Court, where at the time when she clerked at the Supreme Court, there were 39 other law clerks and only 13 of them were women, which she said was pretty typical. So she said, quote, to get a Supreme Court clerkship, you have to have a strong advocacy and support from your appeals court judge. And that's how I got there, through Judge Kavanaugh supporting me. I also interviewed a, another former clerk, uh, 
and um, her name is Jennifer Mascot, and she she really echoed that sentiment. And both of them, you know, they didn't want to get too into their family lives, which I really respected because, like, just because we're women doesn't mean we have to be the ones saying, "Oh, this is how I balance everything, my work and family life." But it seemed like he understood that, and both of them have been able to go on and have families and also maintain very powerful and accomplished careers. And they could not have done that without the support of uh, people like their former boss. Um, So here's a little clip of uh, Jen Mascot going to bat for him. As a former clerk, you know, we would assist him and he would go through uh, 20, 40 or more drafts of opinions, first making sure that he had uh, looked at all of the relevant law, keeping an open mind to how the issue should come down in that particular case, and then working all the way to the end on details, like how an opinion is worded, making sure that it carefully and accurately describes the law and is readable by everybody, ranging from other jurists to first-year law students to the public. He's a person who really cares about his job and serving the country. So, Bree, I can imagine that if uh, Barrett, for example, who has seven children, had been the nominee, a lot of people would be asking her right now, well, how are you going to balance being a mom to seven children and a Supreme Court judge? And, you know, of course, even though um, Kavanaugh has two young, beautiful children, I don't think anybody in the media is asking him that question. So I decided to pose it to Mascot, the clerk you just heard from in that clip. And here's what she had to say about his ability to still be the very involved father that he is and take on a very important role at the Supreme Court. So she said the great thing about him being on the D.C. Circuit, which is just a court that hears a lot of tough, challenging cases with the big administrative record is he already has a track record. So we can already see how he would balance family and work and anticipate he would do the same thing at the court that he does currently. I think he also brings a sense of efficiency and rigor that enables him to be great at his job and then also spend time with his family. Bray, what do you think? I like it. (laughs) I also loved, did you see the photos of him like working the soup kitchen line? And then there's the article, I think it was from The Hill being like, oh, we caught him at the soup kitchen it's like, whoa, shocker. Lock him up. I also, <laughs> another fun fact I learned in doing some of these interviews, which I don't think is out there much in the media, is that he has run the Boston Marathon at least once, but I think he has done it more than once. And I'm just like, how do you do all this? I don't know. <laughs> It's pretty impressive, but I think we're going to continue hearing these narratives from the left that he not only doesn't have the support of women, but also that his nomination will undermine women's rights. I think it's important to push back. I'd encourage you all to check out this article that I wrote on the Daily Signal, emailing some, uh, emailing, interviewing some of his former clerks on their experience and working uh, for him. Um you know, spread the word. Well, that wraps up our show for this week. Thank you so much for tuning in as always. And if you know a problematic woman, please let us know. You can follow all of my work at The Federalist and at The Daily Signal. And you can also follow me on Twitter if you feel like it (laughs) at Brie underscore Peyton. You can follow my work at The Daily Signal and on Twitter at Kelsey J. Harkness. So this podcast is a collaboration of The Daily Signal and The Federalist and is produced by the wonderful Lauren Evans of The Daily Signal. 
If you like it, please support us by rating and subscribing on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. We appreciate you sharing problematic women with your friends and for supporting strong conservative women who are standing up for America's culture.